I'd like to take a moment to introduce Professor Patrick Geary, uh, who is our speaker this morning and is Emeritus Professor of Medieval History at the Institute for Advanced Study. He did his studies at Spring Hill College, the Catholic University of Louvain, and Yale University. He's taught at a number of institutions, including Princeton, University of Florida, the University of Notre Dame, and UCLA, where I had the privilege of having him as a professor and mentor. He is the former director of the Notre Dame Medieval Institute and the UCLA Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies. To list all his major publications would um, uh, be prolix, I fear, but um, one in particular that pertains to today's talk, he's written on Ferda Sacra, the theft of relics in the Middle Ages. He's written on the topic of memory, the medieval origins of Europe, <clears throat> and many other, many other major works. So we're grateful to Professor Patrick Geary, and we'd like to give him the floor now for, for his talk, Pledges of the Saints, the Cult of Relics in the Catholic Tradition. Father Sam, thank you very much. It is a, a real pleasure to be here and an honor to speak uh, at the Forum of the Lumen Christi Institute and uh, the organization that's especially important in my whole career, which is the Bollander Society, an organization that, uh, as Michael said, for 400 years has been the forefront of scholarship on all aspects of the cult of the saints. And uh, this is a, uh, an essential work that goes far beyond uh, simply the analysis and recovery of documents about the saints and is a, an international treasure that the Jesuit society has organized and perpetuated for so long. The physical remains of the saints are often referred to as pignora, which could be translated as security posits, pledges, almost pawns. Uh, that is that they, as the physical remains of the saints, they show that although in heaven, the saints are still intimately present in the world and present to continue to aid and to show favor to those who venerate them. But this tradition, like every other part of the Catholic tradition, has a history. Uh, this is something that develops over time in many directions, and I'll try briefly to talk a little bit about that uh, today. The cult of the saints is not, uh, the cult of the interest in physical remains is not unique by any means to the Catholic tradition. Uh, many cultures, uh, or whether they're religious or non-religious, uh, have a feeling of a sense of relationship to objects that in some way were intimately connected with a very special dead, whether it's Mahatma Gandhi or even Napoleon. Uh, and it's not only the objects that had been part of their lives, uh, but even their bodies. Uh, in the Buddhist tradition, flesh bodies of uh, important uh, Buddhist monks. Uh, obviously, even in uh, traditions that are officially agnostic, such as uh, the communist tradition of Lenin or the body of 
uh, of Mao that are preserved. But there is a fundamental difference within the Catholic tradition between this fascination with the physical remains of the dead or the objects that had connected them. And that is the promise of physical resurrection, uh, the empty tomb uh, in Jerusalem, the idea that just as Christ is raised from the dead, all will be raised at the end. And thus the bodies, the physical remains of the dead, as well as those things that had been intimately connected with them, will somehow be resuscitated, will be part of a new creation. And therefore, this is a fundamental difference between the veneration of uh, the special dead that are the saints and the uh, fascination with uh, heroes of the past in other traditions. But this tradition does not develop early in Christianity. As far as we can tell, even the early cults of Peter, for example, were not particularly located in the Vatican. Uh, it's not quite clear where one venerated Peter, possibly in the uh, 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 catacomb of uh, San Sebastiano, uh, as well as the tomb that is now understood to be Peter's under the Vatican. The first three centuries of Christianity, we don't have a lot of evidence of the cultivation of the remains of the saints. Although probably some kinds of, of commemoration took place at the tombs of saints, uh, the tombs of martyrs specifically, and these would have been always outside of cities because in the Roman tradition, uh, bodies were unclean and could not be buried within a city. So in suburban cemeteries, and if something went on there, it was probably related to the tradition of a pre-Christian tradition of uh, a meal at the tomb on anniversaries of death and the like. It's really only after Constantine and really the middle of the fourth century that we begin to hear about the development of a cult of the martyrs focused on the tombs of the martyrs. This is so therefore a post-Constantinian development, largely advanced by bishops, although not entirely. But these cults tend to be at the site of the burial. In the Roman tradition, bodies may not be disinterred, they may not be moved around, and therefore the veneration of these special saints who were the martyrs takes place in the catacombs or in cemeteries outside of cities throughout uh, the Roman world. This only begins to change in the middle of fourth century, the first time that we know that the remains of a martyr are actually moved are those of the uh, Saint Biblos of Antioch, uh, whose body is presumably moved not by a bishop, but by the emperor, Constantius Gallus, uh, from Antioch to Daphne, which is uh, uh, nearby. This is the first translation, as the term is made, translatio, carrying across, the first translation of a saint that we know of in, uh, in the Christian uh, tradition. The tradition of finding and moving bodies is in the West rather uh, 
uh, unusual and begins with uh, Bishop Ambrose of Milan, who in 386 finds the bodies of Gervasius and Protasius. Uh, it's called technically an invention, an inventio, which simply means finding. It doesn't mean invent it in the modern term. And what Ambrose does is something quite unusual and actually illegal, which is to find what he says are these bodies in a suburban cemetery and then moves them into his basilica, uh, which he is constructing in the city. So this is moving bodies into the city, uh, an illegal act according to Roman law, but a kind of defiance in the face of imperial authority. And this will become increasingly uh, a practice in uh, the Western as well as the Eastern church. The real movement of saints will be primarily in the East and that is to Constantinople. Rome has lots of martyrs. Constantinople, the new Rome has none. And so the emperors will go about collecting where they can bodies of apostles and moving those to Constantinople. Uh, so that sanctity is now a movable thing. Those bodies that are both in this world and the saints are glorified in the next world can be moved around. So it's a possibility of moving, transferring sanctity from the place of martyrdom, the place of burial to wherever one wants to have it, particularly into cities, into uh, churches. Beginning in the East, in Syria, uh, in Ethiopia, perhaps uh, in Armenia, we begin to also hear the practice of taking parts of the bodies, uh, taking apart bodies of martyrs and moving these as individual relics. This is a practice that begins in the East and moves West so that sanctity can now be divided up and pieces of sanctity can move around within the Christian world. But most of the objects that are venerated in the Western tradition are not going to be primary, the early period, not primarily body parts, but other kinds of things that were intimately connected with the saints. This is a, a very unusual, very early collection of relics from the Lateran Palace, from the Sancta Sanctorum, a small box, actually the box is probably sixth century. Uh, the objects are relics with labels and to see who people are venerating, these, these, these are objects that for the most part were in touch with saints. Old Testament, life of Christ and Mary, New Testament saints and angels, some Roman martyrs, a few other martyrs, very few post-persecution saints. The idea of the saint initially is the martyr, only gradually after the period of martyrdom do other holy men and women who by their lives professed or confessed their faith will be understood as saints, as, as confessors. And in this collection, what, what are we looking at here really? They're stones, they're fragments of cloth, they're bits of wood, and early relics will often include things like bits of the Holy Cross, supposedly discovered by uh, the Empress, uh, the mother of Constantine Hel Helena, uh, often oil from lamps that burned at tombs of saints, 
dust collected from the tombs, cloths either that were clothing of the saint or that has simply been touched to the saint's sarcophagus uh, will become relics. And these are the kinds of relics along with some bits of bone that will circulate uh, within the early Christian uh, communities. These objects are placed into containers called reliquaries. On the left, you see a vial that probably contained oil that would have come from a lamp burning at the tomb of the saint. On the, the other side is a, uh, a purse reliquary, as it's called, a small object, this one made of gold, that would have carried the relics of a saint. And it's like a purse, it is portable. Uh, it's a small object that could easily be carried by an individual. Uh, it is decorated with, uh, uh, with uh, precious materials, sometimes with uh, stones, certainly with gold or silver. You can see it's been repaired because these objects will also serve as a kind of treasury. And in hard times, a church might have to cut off a piece of the gold and then in better times replace it as uh, uh, their financial situation uh, improves. But for the most part, these early reliquaries circulate uh, within the community uh, and as transportable again, can bring sanctity to uh, different parts of the world. The real takeoff of the relic cult, I think though, it takes place under the reign of the Emperor Charlemagne, this Frankish emperor who is able to consolidate rule over much of not only what is Gaul, later on France, uh, much of what is Germany, the Low Countries, uh, uh, Catalonia, also Italy, put together a, a very large uh, empire and is particularly concerned in reform and control of religious practice. And among his measures are, first of all, no new saints are to be authenticated uh, unless by the quality of their written lives and recognition. So no spontaneous uh, popular saints are to be added to the, the canon. Saints' remains are not to be transferred without the permission of local bishop or the local count. So one cannot have freelance movement of saints' bodies as sites of cult. But at the same time, the importance of relics is emphasized. Every altar must contain relics. Just as Ambrose had moved Portasius and into the, uh, his new basilica. In North Africa began in, uh, a bit later that altars should contain relics. Now this is brought into the Western, uh, uh, Western Europe with a requirement that altars must contain some kind of relics, oaths to be, to be sworn on relics. And there's an emphasis particularly on re Roman relics because the Carolingian Empire and Charlemagne very much tie themselves to the way Christianity is understood in the Roman world. So all things Roman are particularly important to Charlemagne and his Frankish uh, empire. Well, what this means is a massive increase for competition for relics because no new saints must be authentic relics, but every church has to have them. So we begin to see translations of martyrs from Rome to the Frankish empire. Frankish prelates, go to Rome, they have enormous power in Italy and in Rome, 
and they are able to convince or coerce uh, popes to provide them with the bodies of, uh, of saints. Uh, of course, popes can also play this by making donation to prelates. They are able to establish a kind of patronage relationship between the popes who have the depository of all of the uh, martyrs of the early church and can provide those to Frankish ecclesiastics. But beside that, there's also a lively commerce in relics. And there are professional uh, relic salesmen who travel to great monasteries and churches north of the Alps selling relics. And many of these are apparently stolen. They are, there's an operation of uh, relic thieves who systematically work through the catacombs, taking what they claim to be relics, taking them north and selling them to bishops and abbots uh, throughout the Frankish Empire. So we begin to see a much more movement of relics, a fluidity of sanctity operating through official channels, but also operating through these, uh, through a kind of black market in saints uh, that is increasingly important uh, in, uh, in the Western Christian tradition. Now, relics proliferate across Europe and they're often contained, uh, usually contained in some kind of reliquary, a, a box, uh, sometimes a statue uh, or a partial statue that represents the saint. We see just some examples here of Saint Foi. This is a combination of different bits of statues and materials put together uh, in the course of the 10th and 11th century, starting with a late Roman uh, idol's head and then other material added to it, a 10th century relic, reliquary, head reliquary from uh, saint Maurice d'Argonne, uh, the tomb of the three wise men in Cologne, uh, supposedly taken in the uh, 12th century from Italy, uh, more or less appropriated as war booty and taken to Cologne, or, or something that we see very commonly, these reliquaries than the form of an arm. They don't necessarily contain the relic of an arm, but they are used for blessing a crowd. You can see the fingers in the form of a blessing, and these would be used by a bishop during a ceremony to raise and to bless population. Of course, the great pilgrimages still go to the tombs of saints. Uh, the great pilgrimages are to Jerusalem, first of all, to Rome, then places like Compostela or more regional places like uh, the tomb of Thomas Becket. But while those continue to be the major foci for large-scale devotion, presence of relics is extremely important elsewhere uh, in the, these particles which can now move around, moving sanctity. And uh, the way that relics are venerated uh, within the Christian community is itself a complicated process. Obviously, pilgrims travel to sites in fulfillment of a vow. Individuals will wear relics suspended from their necks as a talisman. Relics are placed on the ill in the hope that by coming into physical contact with the relic, one might be cured through the saint. Or the ill might drink water that's been poured over relics. 
in the case of Thomas Beckett, uh, bits of blood from the martyr will be mixed with water and given to people who are ill uh, as a cure. And relics will be maintained as objects of private devotion in homes as well as in churches. And there's even a bit of competition. Where is the appropriate place for uh, these, uh, these relics? Now, well, pilgrims will travel to these sites on special feasts. They will visit churches and receive increasingly from the 13th century an indulgence for viewing the relics. There's an increased interest in actually seeing the relics. And so reliquaries will, uh, from the 12th, 13th century, often have a little uh, crystal window so that one can actually see the portion of the body of the saint. Vision is understood as a physical contact in the Middle Ages, so that by seeing one is touching the relative relic and coming into direct contact uh, with the saint. The explosion of relics in the West comes with the Fourth Crusade. This is a crusade that's supposed to go and free the Holy Land, but it gets diverted and it ends up instead sacking Constantinople, the center of Eastern Christianity, uh, a catastrophic event for the Byzantine world and for Christendom uh, that has yet, to, the, the effects of this have yet to, uh, to have been completely worked out. This is catastrophic for Eastern Christianity. And when these crusaders uh, take Constantinople, they take its enormous storehouse of relics. And these relics then will be distributed all across Western Europe by those who plundered the churches of Constantinople. This is a, a map that just shows a few places where we have actual texts writing and bragging about having stolen these, so places as far away as Halberstadt in, uh, in Germany, and Soissons in France, Longo, uh, across Europe. Most of these go to Venice because Venice is operating this crusade and uh, uh, enormous amounts of uh, booty from Constantinople are taken to Venice. The result is an enormous spread of relics of the saints all across Europe uh, with a tremendous number of small individual reliquaries and then claims that these relics are uh, in fact uh, the relics of the saints. Now, of course, relics are not the only way that saints are venerated. Uh, they have competition from icons, from images. Uh, one of the earliest and most important in Rome is the Salos Populi Romani in Santa Maria Maggiore. Uh, uh, an icon or a painting, this is an issue between East and West interpretation of what it is with miraculous, uh, miraculous images, miraculous statues, Our Lady of the Underground in Chartres, for example or simply sacred places like Mont San Angelo, which is uh, one of the earliest sites that is a pilgrimage to St. Michael the Archangel. Uh, no relics of Michael at this time, but a site where he presumably appears. So there is a competition between the physical remains of saints, images of the saints, images of, uh, uh, of Christ and the Virgin, as well as places that have been sanctified by some kind of miraculous uh, event. Uh, 
what is to the within this tradition there are also there are problems as you can imagine with the proliferation of relics are these genuine how do we know that these are genuine relics and they're particularly problems for example the head of john the baptist well we have the head of john the baptist in amiens we have the head of john the baptist in rome uh the head of john the baptist is in munich the head of John the Baptist is in Topkapi Palace in Istanbul. Uh, and of course, it is uh, in Damascus, uh, Syria, in the Great Mosque, where John's buried and his body continues to be assumed to be present. So there's a problem of too many of these different kinds uh, of relics. The question is, what makes a relic legitimate? How does one verify? Normally, they have an authentic eye, a little strip of parchment that has been, that labels them authenticated by an ecclesiastic. But the real test of a relic is, does it increase the devotion of the faithful? Does it perform appropriate miracles? Uh, is this of a saint who is a recognized saint? And if so, then it's probably genuine. If it does not receive devotion, or if it becomes an object of the, that damages a community, creates tensions or uh, problems in the community, then it is probably not a genuine relic. So it's a very, uh, 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 a very straightforward functional determination of whether a relic is genuine or not. Sometimes they're tested by fire, but more important, they're looked at in terms of what do they do for the community? Do they increase devotion or not? There are also problems in opposition to relics and dubious practices. So the foreskin of Jesus is problematic, particularly since there are about a dozen of them. The milk tooth of Jesus was preserved supposedly at St. Medard of Soissons. And there are various locations, most importantly Bruges, that supposedly have vials of the blood of Jesus. These raise real problems for some churchmen. And in particular, these relics of Jesus are problematic because they are seen as a distraction from the Eucharist. Christ is raised and is in, in heaven. His body has been already glorified. There should not be bits of the body of Jesus left. What is the gauge, the promise, the bigness of Christ is the Eucharist. And so these kinds of devotion toward material objects are seen by some churchmen as a distraction from what should be the focus of Christian devotion toward Christ, uh, which is uh, the Eucharist. From the later Middle Ages, there are other practices that create problems, particularly the relationship between relics and indulgences. Uh, this is an example of a collection, an illustrated collection of the relics of, the, of Frederick the Wise, the Elector of Saxony. Uh, he had over 5,000 relics in his collection, and he had a book prepared that illustrated each of these relics. And within this volume, they are numbered. Each one is given a number, the number of fragments, the number of particles. It's divided into groupings or ganga, 
and then each one gives a running summary of how many particles are in that. And at the end, it totals all of these to 5,005. And then it concludes that the volume says that there is an indulgence of 1,600 days given for seeing each particle. So it's a really kind of accounting system of looking at relics of all sorts and saving up indulgences. Obviously, uh, this bothered a lot of people, and particularly reformers objected, first of all, to the fraudulent nature of purported relics, and thus these things like how many sacred foreskins and how many heads did John the Baptist have and so forth. Secondly, rejection of indulgences attached to viewing these relics, objections to relic worship as a kind of paganism. This is seen by people like Calvin as a holdover from pagan tradition in Christianity. And then fundamentally, a rejection of the intervention of the saints in living uh, society. So uh, a fundamental attack both on relics and on the cult of the saints, which is integral to uh, the reform movement. Within the Catholic reform, there is an attempt first of all, to reaffirm the importance and the validity of veneration of relics. So at the Council of Trent, one of the last uh, topics dealt with are the cult of the saints. And those who affirm that no veneration is due to relics or that relics and other sacred remains are uselessly honored should be condemned. So a, con a confirmation of the tradition of honoring the relic. But at the same time, it goes on to say that any superstition in the evocation of saints, veneration of relics, sacred use of image shall be eradicated. So there's a recognition that there is a scandal within the cult of saints and relics that must be eradicated. It does not say quite what the superstition is. Is drinking a vial of, uh, of, of water in which bits of what was supposedly the blood of Thomas Beckett have been added. Is that superstitious or is that veneration? They don't go into details on these things. And in the period of the Catholic Reformation, there will be a great use of relics. Attempting to control spontaneous or dubious cults will certainly go on. They will be used in devotional Catholicism to a great extent with a great appeal to the visual. This is one of my favorite examples in, in Munich of this kind of elaborated uh, mise-en-scene, if you will, of a, uh, a skeleton decorated in an almost humorous way, but this is very much part of the Baroque visual impact of Christianity, which will be used uh, in the early modern period. And this will continue not only in the Catholic Reformation, but also in the restoration of the 19th century. Consider in North America, the attempt to attach the new diocese of Los Angeles to Rome. Uh, Saint Vibiano, patroness of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Now there had been for a long time uh, dedicate the, the Church of Los Angeles was dedicated to Our Lady Queen of the Angels Assistance. This is where we get the name Los Angeles. But that really wasn't enough to 
established this new diocese with a good, clear connection to Rome. So in 1853, in a Roman catacomb, there is a burial found, an inscription to the soul of the innocent and pure Viviana. And there's a laurel wreath. Well, this must have been a martyr. And because she's from Rome, this must be a genuine martyr. And so this otherwise completely unknown saint is provided to the new diocese of Los Angeles as the patroness of the diocese, because this is a genuine martyr from the catacombs of Rome. It's a part of how Rome establishes its relationship to local churches. Uh, today, Viviana's uh, uh, reliquary is in the basement of in the crypt of the new cathedral in Los Angeles. The new cathedral is no longer dedicated to Viviana. It is dedicated to Our Lady, uh, which uh, might be more appropriate. Vatican II looks at the cult of relics, uh, the cult of saints, but in a very different way from Trent. And as Vatican uh, Lumen Gentium says, the authentic cult of the saints consists not so much in the multiplying of external acts, but rather in the greater intensity of our love. So taking a focus away, not saying anything about the physicality, but emphasizing the, uh, that it is the intensity of love which the cult of the saints should genu generate rather than multiplying external acts of devotion. But relics still continue and relics are still important within the Christian Catholic devotional tradition, as well as all of these problems that have developed with relics through the centuries. So for example, we have relics of St. John Paul II, uh, the reliquary in the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in the US, in the Cologne Cathedral, Spoleto, Italy. Unfortunately, we're back to the ninth century. These two have been stolen. Held for hostage, uh, not quite sure. And this one's available on eBay if you are interested in acquiring a relic of a saint. Thus, we see through the Christian tradition this interest in physical contact with the saint, an interest in a devotion which can take bits of what is heaven on earth move it around, bring it into direct contact with individuals, but at the same time, the tendency, the danger of an expansion of this into areas which are deeply problematic uh, and have been seen as problematic both within and without the Catholic tradition uh, almost since its inception. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Professor Geary, for a, an excellent talk. Um, we have a number of questions from our audience. Are you ready to field those? As best I can. Very good. So one of our questions has to do, you mentioned, you talked about some of the early history of relic veneration. One of our viewers asked about the collection of the remains of St. Polycarp by his followers in, in, his, in his passion. Is this an early evidence of relic veneration or do we not have enough foundation to say that? The problem is all of these early accounts are not actually early. They are uh, mid fourth century. 
So uh, we have stories, particularly from uh, uh, the church historian Eusebius, who tells stories of these early martyrs and the veneration of martyrs. He's writing in the uh, uh, mid uh, fourth century and projecting possibly his understanding of what is going on back one or two centuries. So the, the problem with these accounts of very early veneration of the martyrs is that the accounts themselves are not as early as the events that they portray. This is the kind of thing that the Bollandists work on to try to understand the relationship between texts which are written for devotional purposes, sometimes ideological purposes, and the events that they uh, purport to describe. Excellent, thank you. Then we have another question about how the Shroud of Turin fits into this picture of the veneration of relics. Well, the Shroud of Turin, you know, I am, first of all, I'm not an expert on any individual relic, so I can't go into the, the whole history of these things. The, Sh the Shroud of Turin is something that shows up uh, from the later Middle Ages. Uh, I did once meet someone who said in an archive he found the receipt for his manufacturer. I'm not sure if that is entirely correct. But there are a number of objects that are venerated as authentic relics of the passion. Uh, the shroud, nails, crown of thorns, uh, and so forth. There's also a tension with images between the veneration of an image and a relic. So those, there are kind, there's a whole category of images that are called images not created by human hands, that are miraculous images that occur, such as the veil of Veronica, the, ver, the vera icon, the true icon, her name means. This is something that was not painted, but happened miraculously. The same is true of the Shroud of Turin, of other paintings that supposedly fell from heaven that therefore are not simply human creations. They're not simply human representations, but somehow they have a direct connection to a miraculous event. And I would place the Shroud of Turin within that. This also raises this question, which is actually raised uh, by Jouibert de Nargent, who was a 12th century abbot, who is very unhappy about these relics of Christ, particularly the milk tooth at Soissons, because he says the way Christ is to be venerated is in the Eucharist, not in his milk teeth or in these kinds of objects that supposedly are uh, his blood or, or whatever, but one should venerate Christ in the Eucharist. This is the central ritual of, of Christianity. Excellent. Um, then could you speak a little bit to the, um, what role relics have played in the process of canonization throughout the centuries? Is the, is the authenticating of someone as a saint reliant in any way on, on uh, relics? As I understand it, the authentication of, uh, of saints is based on testimony of their lives also testimony of miracles. Now, how does one know that this particular saint affected this particular miracle? This may indeed be through 
a, a relic through the, the tomb of the saint or a relic of the saint, a relic of this saint was taken to this person and this person was cured. So the relics can play a role in this. But it's primarily, the interesting thing about canonization, we say, oh, well, this is from the 12th century reserved to the papacy. But throughout history, first of all, what comes first is the belief, the cult of the faithful. Without a cult of a saint, without the veneration already going on, no saint's going to get canonized. Well, a few if you have a really powerful political machine behind it. For the most part, what the papacy is doing is simply recognizing an existing devotion on the part of a populace, a devotion which is manifest in performance of miracles. And the question is, who is this person? That's an investigation into the life of the individual. And in that cult, in that spontaneous devotion of followers, it's entirely possible uh, that relics will play a role, but relics are not an essential part of the process. Excellent. Um, then did it sounds like there was some recognition in the in the Middle Ages about the problem of duplication of relics, such as the head of John the Baptist. What were the was it would, did people simply say, well, one of these is fraudulent or that they or many of these are fraudulent? How did people at the time deal with that problem? It's a very complicated process that goes on differently in different places. Uh, there are competitions, there are claims and counterclaims. We have the body of, uh, we have the head of John the Baptist. No, these others do. Sometimes they say, well, you used to have it, but we stole it, which is one of the reasons we have these stories about thefts. If you say, oh, well, uh, we just picked this up, or somebody gave it to us, well, why would they give it to you if it's that important? But if you say, well, we sent a monk to their church who stayed there and in the middle of the night broke in and stole it and miraculously was able to bring it back to us and it must be genuine. So there are claims that these have been stolen. And then sometimes it's worked out in law courts. Uh, in Noyon in France, there is a long dispute. Who has the body of Elugius, the first bishop of Noyon? The monastery of Elugius or saint Eloi claims that they have the body. The bishop says he has the body in the same city. They're both claiming that they have the saint. Well, the bishop excommunicates anyone who would make a pilgrimage to the monastery. The monks sue him in papal court because they say we're losing 10,000 marks of income from pilgrims. It actually, there's a court case set up. A bishop, uh, the archbishop of Rouen is established to hold the case, they collect documentation, they open the reliquaries. St. Louis is present to see what they're going to find. They interrogate the local people to see when your horse is ill, do you take it to the monastery or to the cathedral? So there's a whole legal process to try to figure out who has the body. At the end, the good archbishop says, neither church can open the, their reliquaries for a century and let the one who has the real body guard it carefully. Truth. Uh, that is a, a kind of a stalemate. And it only ends at the French Revolution when the revolutionaries destroy both. Thank you very much. Uh, we have a number of people asking about the placement of relics and altars. 
and you mentioned this in connection with with Charlemagne's rule but is this something still required by the Catholic Church and and if so is there a certain grade of relic that one needs in order to do this I am not an expert in contemporary canon law. You probably can answer better than I. My understanding is that yes, I think relics are still required to be placed in, uh, in altars. Uh, exactly what those relics are uh, today, uh, I don't know. Uh, today we classify things, first class relic, second class relic, uh, a physical relic of a saint or brandia or uh, contact relics and, and so forth. I don't know what the co contemporary rules are. I do know that in the ninth century, there's a church council uh, in, in England that says, if you don't have a relic, you can put a consecrated host in the altar because after all, this is the body of Christ. I don't think that that goes on today. No, that, yeah, that wouldn't be. My understanding is that they are supposed to be first class relics one of the differences now, too, is that um, formerly there was a practice and, and a widely used rite for creating an altar stone. And so a piece of stone in which a relic is inserted and then placed in the altar. Uh, now, my understanding is that that rite isn't widely used any longer and that the, the relics are placed directly into the altar rather than into the stone. There was a whole tradition of portable altars, or uh, uh, an altar stone with a relic in it that could be moved around and used for performing mass at various places so that they would, again, the portability of the relic and its movability, which is uh, kind of getting away from the idea of the consecrated altar within the consecrated church. So it would make sense that that idea of the altar stone, which could be taken out and moved around, uh, would be de-emphasized. Can you speak a little bit to a theological question, particularly in the Middle Ages, of how um, the division of, you mentioned that the connection to the resurrection, of course, is distinctive of the Catholic tradition's understanding of relics. How did the division of the bodies into relics of the saints create any problems or issues for the bodily resurrection? Was it assumed that God would simply gather the bodies from, from the places they've been scattered or what's, what's going on here? Yes, I, I think that that essentially is the idea. There's also the idea that any piece of the saint is the equivalent of the whole body of the saint. Uh, now, that is, that's the theory. A church says, well, we have a finger of, uh, say, John the Baptist. Well, that's as good as having the entire body of John the Baptist. It doesn't really work that way. The, the sites that have the tomb of a saint tend to be the primary location for the veneration of that saint. The dismemberment is often done well, sometimes it's done by somebody breaking in and stealing a piece, or even in some cases, we hear about an abbot who visits another church and bites off a piece of the body and gets away with it. But more often, this it will be, say, for example, the, the cathedral will have the relics of a saint. They will then give parishes within their diocese bits of that saint. But the understanding is that at the resurrection, the entire body 
by divine power will be reunited and will be raised. So dismemberment of the body does not prevent the resurrection, uh, the physical resurrection of the saint. And the idea that any piece represents the entire body is also a problem in the descriptions of relic translations. Uh, the language is very, very fluid. Uh, they may talk about moving the body of the saint, but then they'll talk about it as being in a small sack. So whether it's a bit of dust from the tomb, the whole skeleton of the saint, simply a bone, it's very, very vague. And the idea that this is a saint, whether it's just a small portion of dust from his tomb or the entire body. So within the devotion of the faithful, they're not terribly concerned about these issues of what percentage of the body do we have. Excellent. And can you, did you, do you know anything more about the origin of these categories of relics of first class, second class, and third class? No, I do not. That, okay. uh, uh, that sounds like a, a typical scholastic uh, creation of distinctions. Uh, but but to, to your knowledge, does it belong to the Middle Ages or is it posterior? Uh, the Middle Ages is very aware of the different kinds of relics. Although uh, the, the, when the popes are giving out relics, for the most part, they are giving, uh, in the early church, they're giving contact relics. Uh, now, as these contact relics move across Europe, the idea that they were contact relics may be forgotten. This is a relic of Peter. Well, it may be uh, dust taken from the tomb. By the time it gets where it's going, it may be a physical relic. Uh, there is a, a likelihood of uh, forgetting or exaggerating what one has received. But most of the relics distributed by the popes in the early church or contact. In fact, the empress writes to uh, Pope Gregory the Great and asks for the head of St. Peter. And he says, it's not the Western tradition to divide up our saints. We don't distribute relics of the saints. Well, that's not entirely true, but for the most part, what he distributes are things like links from the chain of Peter, which are sent to uh, Western rulers. Uh, he wants relics to be used in missionary activities. What are those relics? It's not clear. But when you look at a box like that little collection of relics from the Sancta Sanctorum, we see that for the most part, these are not corporeal relics. And yet they are venerated as an extremely important uh, objects that are impregnated with the power and the sanctity of, of the saints. Thank you. Uh you mentioned also the, the comments or the, the decrees, if you will, made by the councils of Trent and, and Vatican II. And we have a, some questions from our viewers about what, if any, role does, how effective are these interventions by the hierarchy in disciplining or channeling veneration of the saints? This is always uh, an issue. It has been from the beginning because as I said, the, venera the, the, the veneration of the saints is, is primarily a popular activity. And the ability of the church hierarchy to control veneration, it, it's, there's always a tension. It's been suggested that part of the reason that Ambrose 
is translating these saints into the city is that they are already a site of veneration by pious, wealthy laywomen. And he wants to control it as the bishop. So taking these relics from suburban cemeteries into the cathedral is a way to take control of the cult. But saints don't really like to be controlled. Uh, there's a wonderful story of Saint Fida, Saint Foi. We saw her statue in uh, the south of France. And mobs want to come in and venerate her all night. And the, the monks who control the, the, the saint's body, which had been stolen, incidentally, from someplace else and put in this, this jeweled statue, uh, they don't want these people coming in. So they lock the church. And in the middle of the night, the doors burst open, the people come in and do what they want to anyway. The saint says, well, bring them in. So there is a constant between what appears to be what the saint wants and what the bishop or the abbots want. So there is a tension between how the laity venerate the saints, which they see as a response to what the saints want, and what the hierarchy wants. So I think that these, these efforts to control are always in dynamic tension as so much of the life of the church is because, you know, what is the, who is the church? The ecclesia of the people. It's not the hierarchy. And so there is a, a kind of a dialogue, a give and take. And there are many, many practices that if brought forward to an ecclesiastical tribunal, uh, they'd be horrified but they go on because this is how people express their devotion uh, to their saint. Right. And we, we have a number of questions too about um, scientific testing of relics, carbon dating and other such methods. Do, um, does the Holy See or, or any church body use these? Do scholarly societies like the Bollandists use them? Um, and if you have anything to comment on this topic. Uh, I don't think that the Bollandists are doing these kinds of uh, testing. Uh, they're, uh, one of the interesting tests of early relics is not so much the relics as these little slips that label them to determine from the writing when they were written, where they were written, and to see how these relic, relic collections came together. Uh, at different times, because presumably they are carried by pilgrims or by traders, and so you can see a network. In terms of seeing what these things are, there are some relics, uh, for example, the Shroud of Turin that has been subjected to various kinds of scientific analysis multiple times. Uh, in terms of what is inside each reliquary, there are churches that allow scholars to dismantle the reliquary and see what is inside. And this is why sometimes we find that these reliquaries may have an image of one saint on them, but inside the authentici, these little slips indicate they're other saints. There's not necessarily a relationship between the image on the reliquary and what's in it. And then are they bits of bone or not? Uh, what I don't think anyone, uh, there's someone who actually wants to try to use genetic testing to see what he can determine from these relics. But given how often they have been handled, curated, manipulated, uh, I work a lot with genetics. And my, my major research is using ancient DNA analysis. Uh, we're not gonna get good DNA 
out of these to determine even are these human or animal bones. You know, Chaucer complains that the partner is, is uh, selling indulgences based on piggy's bones. Uh, I think it's unlikely that we're going to be able to do that, but I don't know what that would really prove. You know, in terms of the devotional uh, focus of relics, it goes back to this pragmatic idea do they increase devotion? Do they improve the community? Do they improve the spiritual life of the community? If they do, they're genuine. If they don't, if they become an object of dissension, of uh, trouble, and one church uh, people begin to go into kind of convulsions around the relics and uh, foaming at the mouth and rolling and forward, the bishop says, take them outside and bury them. They're not doing their job. So, uh, yes, there are some scientific studies of some of these relics. There are ideas that one could do more. I'm not sure what we would learn uh, from that. And then uh, kind of following on that a little bit, we have some questions about um, the attitude or disposition of the historian in doing his work on a topic like this. Mm -hmm. Belief and skepticism and how that sort of thing does or doesn't enter into one's professional work? Well, when I set out to write a book on the theft of relics, I made it very clear that for the purposes of my analysis, all of these relics were genuine, unless proven otherwise by contemporaries, that they were working the miracles that they were seen to work, because from the perspective of the, pop, of the people that I was studying, this is what they were and this is how they were working. And to simply stand back and laugh at them and say, oh, 12 foreskins of Jesus and five heads of John the Baptist and so forth, ha ha, that doesn't really help a historian. One has to understand how people think, one has to understand their value system within that. Now, it doesn't mean that one has to buy into that as a contemporary Roman Catholic, or as a scholar, but an attitude of cynicism is not useful in my mind for a, a scholarly position, whether one is studying relics or anything else. So in my work, when, when I am told that this is the body of Saint Foix that has been stolen and brought to Conk and that it is now venerated as a saint and is working these various miracles, I'm going to analyze that from the perspective of the people who report this, who describe this. Now, I may ask, why are they saying this when we have texts about the saint? Why are they describing this? Do they have, or is this to fundraise money, this fundraising? Uh, but it doesn't mean that they don't believe it, even if it is fundraising. We're trying to raise money for the Bollandists. It doesn't mean we don't believe in the Bollandists' work. And the same is true with, uh, with fake relics. It doesn't mean that the individual who is selling what he knows are piggy's bones doesn't believe in the power of saints. He just doesn't think these particular relics are genuine, but he may be a true devotee of other genuine saints at the same time. Excellent. We're gonna close with two questions if you've, if you've, got, the, you've got the time and energy. Um, you mentioned the existence of veneration of relics of, of various kinds in other traditions um, 
in Buddhism and, and even in, in modern ideologies. One of our viewers wants to know, is there any corresponding practice among Jews or Muslims, or is this, is this does not exist among them? Uh, as far as I know, within the Jewish tradition, no. Uh, this is, this is definitely not a Jewish tradition. Within Muslim tradition, you know, there are many Muslim traditions. Uh, right now, the Salafist tradition is totally opposed to any kind of veneration of objects. But in the long, deep tradition of Islam, very much so. There are relics of the Prophet. Uh, uh, there was the house where the prophet lived that has been bulldozed in, uh, in, uh, in Mecca. But there is a long tradition within devotional Islam of the veneration of relics. Uh, and in fact, if you go to the Topkapi Palace in uh, uh, Istanbul, you will see relics of the prophet that were brought back from, from Mecca. So there is a, there is a long tradition in Islam, and certainly there is a cult of the saints, the Islamic saints in the Sufi tradition. And these tombs of the saints that are found uh, throughout, uh, certainly North Africa and other uh, regions of the Islamic world, continue to be very important sites of pilgrimage and of veneration. It's not the veneration within the Catholic tradition of resurrection, but it is certainly present. In the Jewish tradition, there are the tombs of the prophets and the tombs of the patriarchs, which play something abroad, but I have I've never heard of the dismemberment and the distribution of these, these objects. So uh, in the Islamic tradition, in some Islamic traditions, absolutely. Jewish tradition, to my knowledge, no. And then finally, we've had a number of questions on um, the comparative importance of, of relics in the East and the West. And in particular, you mentioned already something about the role of icons and, and how, why in the West we seem to have a greater emphasis on, on relics, at least after Charlemagne um, versus icons in the East. The, the icons have to be understood within a very particular kind of understanding of the universe, of the Neoplatonic understanding of participation in uh, these objects, uh, the participation of that which is represented within, that, uh, within the representation. Uh, an intellectual, philosophical, theological background, which is largely missing uh, in the West. Uh, in the in the late eighth century, there is a uh, uh, kind of a Western uh, claim about images uh, that the West does not venerate saints in their images. It venerates them in the, the true cross and in their relics. Whereas images in the West are for edification, for education, while in the East, they are objects of veneration. That's not entirely true. We know that there are sacred images in the West, certainly in Poland, in places in France, in Italy, at the image that I showed from Rome. But by and large, the development of the relationship between that which is portrayed and the image in the Orthodox Church is a very sophisticated intellectual 
tradition, which simply never took root in a deep way uh, in the Western church. So that our, uh, the, in the West images, uh, as Gregory says, these are the gospels of the illiterate. This is how one learns about but they are obviously a focus of devotion. As you've seen, some of these reliquaries are images. So uh, you will have an image of a saint with a relic inside the image. So what is what are you venerating? You're venerating the image, the relic inside it. This, uh, this becomes a complicated issue which most devotees probably wouldn't really worry about. This is a question for theologians. It's not a question for the person who comes before an image of a saint uh, to ask for intercession and uh, to pray. They're not stopping and saying, now, am I praying to the relic or am I to the saint whose relic it is, or is it the statue? And, and I, I don't think that that's how people really think who are not trained like, uh, uh, theologians. Excellent. Professor Geary, thank you so much for this outstanding talk. We really appreciate your time. It's been an honor. Thank you all very, very much. And uh, uh, I, I really enjoyed it.